Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust, and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. This episode will be about the definition of friendship, the possible types of friendship, and the ways our friends can deepen our understanding of ourselves. Only those are to be judged friendships in which the characters have been strengthened and matured by age. For the rest, what we ordinarily call friends and friendships are nothing but acquaintanceships and familiarities formed by some chance or convenience, by means of which our souls are bound to each other. In the friendship I speak of, our souls mingle and blend with each other so completely that they face the seam that joined them and cannot find it again. If you press me to tell why I loved him, I feel that this cannot be expressed except by answering, because it was he, because it was I. Having so little time to last, and having begun so late, for we were both grown men, and he a few years older than I, it could not lose time and conform to the patterns of mild and regular friendships, which need so many precautions in the form of long preliminary association. Our friendship has no other model than itself and can be compared only with itself. It is not one special consideration, nor two, nor three, nor four, nor a thousand. It is, I know not, what quintessence of all this mixture, which, having seized my whole will, led it to plunge and lose itself in his, which, having seized his whole will, led it to plunge and lose itself in mine with equal hunger, equal rivalry. I say lose in truth, for neither of us reserved anything for himself, nor was anything either his or mine. Michel de Montaigne is a French philosopher from the 16th century. In his most famous work, Les Essais, the Essays, he writes about a broad variety of topics, including the meaning of friendship. In the excerpt we read, Montaigne focuses on his relationship with Étienne de la Boétie. For him, true friendships are very rare, and la Boétie turned out to be the only proper friend he ever had, even if their friendship wouldn't last more than four years because of la Boétie's death in 1563. 
For Montaigne, such a profound bond as friendship could only happen once in a lifetime. In this episode, we will ask ourselves the following questions. What makes a person worthy of being called a friend? Do we need friends, and if so, why? We spoke about love last time and the time before that, but there is so much to be said still about such an immense topic. We focused mainly on romantic love, but there are obviously other types of love, and the one we find in friendships is equally worthy of our attention. One thing that caught my attention and made me think about the nature of friendship was the cultural relativism I thought I was observing between the American conception of friendship and the French one, as if there really could be such a thing. Obviously, the level of generalization was ridiculous, but I was tempted to see more individualism at play in the American way. And I couldn't help but think that American friendships are way more superficial or fragile when confronted to tough times requiring from us to help our friend. A lot of French people I met in the US actually are flabbergasted at the level of flakiness displayed by some Americans and the huge contrast between the display of enthusiasm and affection on one day, the seeming commitment to see each other again, and then the cancelling of plans at the last minute. So it might be very disorienting when you expect so much. Flakiness ends up looking like fakeness somehow. Oh my God. I love you. It took me a long time to realize that it's probably more a language issue, a cultural issue, and I ended up noticing that Americans are just as annoyed with flaky people as French people can be annoyed with them, that they just don't expect maybe as much from pleasant words, and that their enthusiasm and demonstration of affection just has to be taken with a grain of salt when you come from a country like France, where saying I love you to a friend remains very rare, very special, and cannot be taken lightly. I remember watching an American movie with French subtitles back in the day, and it was a fun conversation. At the end of the conversation, the person says, I love you before hanging up, which was translated as au revoir in French, literally just goodbye. I'm still shocked after more than 10 years in this country by the easiness or the lightness with which so many Americans say I love you and how some people could say it to a simple acquaintance. We are so dramatic in friends by contrast about friendship that calling someone a friend is almost like signing a lifelong contract. Now, if you look at the way philosophers have been speaking about friendships, you observe that there is a lot to be said about the antiquity and the role of friendship in ancient ethics. Aristotle, for instance, said, what is a friend? A single soul dwelling into two bodies. Epicurus said, of the things wisdom acquires for the blessedness of life as a whole, far the greatest is a possession of friendship. So you really had an emphasis on specifically the moral role or the role of friendship in our happiness or in our ability to get a good life. This definition of friendship that we find, though, in philosophy sometimes looks very demanding. It's not only descriptive, but it's also very 
normative in the sense that it has a lot of rules and it demands a lot of criteria that need to be respected in order for us to be allowed to call a friend a friend. So the questions we will touch upon are the following. Are there any characteristics that exclusively define friendship? How can I assess whether a friendship is a good, a real, a genuine one or not? What makes friendship worthwhile at all? Why should I invest my energy, my resources, my time in a friend? And we are not going to only look at what defines friendship, but also at the way our friendships define who we are. Indeed, friends play a crucial role in our emotional balance, but also in the construction of our moral character. When we try to identify the exclusive characteristics of friendship, we actually end up comparing it with a romance or with romantic love. So what exactly is special to the type of love that there is in friendship in comparison to the romantic relationships we can have? First of all, we look at a lot of similarities. For instance, the idea that friendship is life-enhancing because of the pleasure felt at sharing activities, for instance, which can suppose often that between friends, but also between lovers, there should be a relative similarity of interests. Then you could also think at the fact that love and friendship involve both a concern for the friend or the beloved for their sake, involving both empathy, sympathy and action also on the friend's behalf. There is also trust that is a similarity between love and friendship. There is a mutual self-disclosure at play in two cases that creates a bond of trust essential to friendship and also essential to romantic relationship. We make ourselves vulnerable to each other in that way. I would even say that we can fall in friendship just the same way that we fall in love. Sometimes in a gathering, for instance, you notice someone that you feel that there will be a good connection with, and it's a, it's a sudden feeling. And then later on, when you sustain that friendship, the physical proximity, the intimacy can even develop. There is a tenderness between friends, even a certain sort of sensuality where touching, smelling, hugging are a very important form perhaps of attraction to the person, even if it's not specifically sexual. About this idea of sustaining friendships and romantic relationships uh, alike, there is a history of concern for each other at play in both types of relationship. A work in progress, a relationship that needs to be fed, nurtured. The durability here is a fundamental element. The commitment, the loyalty also, that you find between friends or between lovers. William James used to say that human beings are born into this little span of life of which the best thing is its friendship and intimacies and yet they leave their friendships and intimacies with no cultivation to grow as they will be by the roadside, expecting them to keep by force of inertia. And he regrets that deeply and insists on the fact that we should precisely nurture our friendships. Aristotle speaks also about that need of time, the fact that there is no immediate gratification sometimes in friendship, but it's more a work, a constant work in progress when he says, for instance, that wishing to be friends is quick work, but friendship is a slow ripening fruit. 
Now let me go back a little bit on something I already said in another episode regarding the three types of love that are distinguished by the ancients. So you have eros on the one hand, philia on the other, and agape. Agape was this unconditional benevolence, the love of God for all humans, for instance, or the love of humans for God. Now, if you look at Eros and Philia, here again you find more similarity between the two than uh, between them and Agape, because Eros, just like Philia, is supposed to focus on the objective properties of the beloved or of the friend. His or her kindness, beauty, listening abilities, whatever it might be. So friendship, like erotic love, is a matter of appraisal. We care about our friends and lovers because we like certain features in their character. And we actually emphasize the problems that rise with this uh, idea that we love someone because of their properties. For the people who were there listening to the last episode, I actually said that these objective features we see in our friend or the person we love might very well be coming from desires we project onto our beloved. And we spoke about the fact that love makes us blind. Well, friendship can also make us blind. The appraisal of these qualities we found in our beloved or in our friend is also too subjected to possible disappointment. These features can change with time. And also, a remark I already made is the fact that if I care about qualities, I would be equally justified in being friends with anyone else having similar qualities. And it so happens that there seems to be something more personal about friendship, just like there is about romantic love, in the connection we have with that specific person. So caring can be a matter of giving or bestowing value onto our beloved or friend not by blindly projecting our desires, but in caring unconditionally, maybe, about a friend for who they are. And in that sense, maybe friendship should have more to do with agape, this idea of selfless devotion to our friends, this unconditional aspect that there is in agape. We'll get back to this selflessness, but before, let's try to identify the differences, if there are any, between romantic love and friendship. Maybe the first thing that comes to mind when we think about these differences would be the sexual attraction that there is between two lovers and that there shouldn't be maybe between two friends. Though that could be, uh, you know, uh, questioned. But the friendship indeed seems to be more serene or safe. That's what Epicurus said about friendship. And he was actually concerned that loving relationships in a romantic way are too passionate. This desire of possession when sex is involved is problematic and you don't have that in friendship because you don't yearn for this physical union. Seneca also uh, leans towards the same direction when he says, friendship always benefits, love sometimes injures. Another difference that we can point to is the fact that friendship might admit more of a relative plurality than romantic love. We can have a lot of friends, maybe not as many loves. Though actually friendship requires a certain exclusivity. We could argue that jealousy is possible among friends who can get very possessive and who sometimes desire a very special type of attention. 
The last difference that I think might be crucial between uh, romantic love and friendship is the fact that friendship really needs reciprocity. It seems to me that you can fall in love with someone who is not going to reciprocate your love, whereas it is hard to call yourself a friend of someone if that person is not your friend in return. Let's now explore what friendship has to do with our moral life. So here I want to recall the fact that we mentioned that friendship should be perhaps selfless and that uh, it's a type of love that requires a certain sacrifice sometime of the self. But is that selflessness just an ideal? It seems that in the past a lot of philosophers have considered it as an essential criterion to a friendship. The true friend is not the one who knows how to feel pity for our sufferings, it is the one who knows how to look at our happiness without envy. This is a quote by Gustave Thibon, who speaks about not only the desire for empathy that we might have towards our friend, but the resistance to envy, to jealousy. So this definition of friendship is extremely demanding and has to do with admiration, loyalty, generosity, integrity, but also with the ability to put our friends first. I'm now going to read a little text by Aristotle, who in Book 8 and 9 of his Nicomachean Ethics divides friendship into three types. There are three types of friendship. The first is friendship based on utility, where both people derive some benefit from each other. The second is friendship based on pleasure, where both people are drawn to the other's wit, good looks, or other pleasant qualities. The third is friendship based on goodness, where both people admire the other's goodness and help one another strive for goodness. The first two kinds of friendship are only accidental, because in these cases, friends are motivated by their own utility and pleasure not by anything essential to the nature of the friend. Both of these kinds of friendship are short-lived because one's needs and pleasures are apt to change over time. Goodness is an enduring quality, so friendships based on goodness tend to be long-lasting. This friendship encompasses the other two, as good friends are useful to one another and please one another. Such friendship is rare and takes time to develop, but it is the best. Bad people can be friends for reasons of pleasure or utility, but only good people can be friends for each other's sake. When there is too great a gap between people, friendship is impossible, and often two friends will grow apart if one becomes far more virtuous than the other. Most people prefer being loved to loving, since they desire flattery and honor. The true mark of friendship, though, is that it consists more of loving than of being loved. Friendships endure when each friend loves the other according to the other's merit.
So in these excerpts from Aristotle, we find first the type of friendship out of pleasure, where the social bonds have to do with enjoying spare time, such as common hobbies or for parties. Then you find the friendships out of utility, where the bonds are often work-related, or more generally it has to do with a mutually beneficial relationship where we can do each other's favors, like with colleagues or neighbors. And finally, you have this true, genuine friendship in which a single soul is dwelling in two bodies, as we were saying earlier, quoting Aristotle. So for Aristotle, I may love my friend because of the pleasure I get out of them or because of the ways in which uh, they are useful to me. But I also may love my friend and even more so because I find them to have an objectively virtuous character. Note here that the three types of friendship are not mutually exclusive and that there can be hopefully pleasure and utility at play in true friendships. But pleasure and utility are not the core elements, they are not the pillars of this true friendship. Moral admiration is. This true friendship still is not unconditional nor selfless. It is conditional because it is based on the person's moral merits and it is not selfless because we seek the validation and the stimulation from our friend who feeds into our virtuous character, who makes us more virtuous or at least sustains our being virtuous. So again, does a perfectly selfless friendship actually exist or is it just an ideal? In the history of ethics or moral philosophy, selflessness has often been considered as utopian. Our human nature is fundamentally self-centered, seeking our own interests. Ordinary friendships comprise, in one way or another, self-interested preoccupations. We always wait for something in return. And this return on investment is not only about favors or help given and received in a careful calculation of who helped most and when. It can simply be that we seek gratitude. Very often, the love we have for our friend is actually not so much based on how they directly support us, but more on how they love us and need us. And we tend to forgive or disregard their flaws as long as they don't affect us negatively. One other thing is that it seems impossible not to compare ourselves with our friends in a competitive way. That is, uh, you know, all the cynicism we could find in La Rochefoucauld, for instance, a particularly caustic uh, author uh, in France, who said, we always love the ones who admire us, but it's difficult to love the ones we admire, to love the ones we value more than ourselves. So if envy is at the core of our human nature, then the conception of a selfless, unconditional friendship obviously falls apart. There is indeed very often in our relationship this schadenfreude at play, this idea that sometimes we feel a guilty joy in the despair of our friends. We compare ourselves to them and feel better about our own situation by contrast. We gain the benefit of looking like great friends by showing them the tenderness they need, which is very gratifying and validating. But inside, really, we are actually rejoicing over their misfortunes. So La Rochefoucauld is one of these thinkers who really think that it's 
impossible to avoid malicious gossip, hypocrisy or flattery in any relationship, no matter how loving it seems to be from the outside. But we don't need to be so pessimistic about human nature to look at friendship and see that it is compatible with egoism while still being a very genuine form of friendship. Epicurus or La Rochefoucauld would be philosophers who try to demystify or debunk a naive conception of friendship. Pleasure and self-interest might be the ultimate aim of human existence, or egoism might be the only principle of conduct, but we can have both egoism and true friendship, true love, really, if we consider that we take more pleasure to love the other than to love ourselves. There is a fusion of egoism and altruism in that type of love. We are the most happy when our love is directed towards our friends, our loved ones in general, and we actually please ourselves by loving them. Now, there are other moral questions surrounding the notion of friendship, and namely one of them has to do with the dilemmas that we can face when our friendship might contradict certain moral duties we might have towards others in general. We saw that friendship might be a condition for our moral betterment, that friends can encourage us to become better people, but one problem that arises when we look at the relationship between friendship and morality is that my duties towards my friends can clash with other moral duties. Here there is a moral preference at play in regards to our friends or our loved ones. It seems that we have more obligations or stronger obligations to aid and support our friends, our family, our loved ones that go well beyond the obligations we have to help strangers, for instance. Now what should we do or what can we do? Do we have to subordinate our personal relationships to abstract and impersonal, impartial moral principles? It seems that our moral lives, our moral reality, can't really escape moral preference for our loved ones, even if our loyalty can be challenged. So for example, if a friend asks me for my urine so they can pass a drug test, I am asked to lie or hide the truth to protect a friend who's done something wrong. And here I am asked to lie to society, to legal institutions in that case, but I'm really also asked to lie to my friend herself or himself. By helping them, I might be indulging them in their wrongdoings. Another question or dilemma that we could encounter when we look at morality and friendship would have to do with conflicts between several of our friends, where you are being asked to take side. So this is precisely why someone like Montaigne insisted on the need for exclusivity in friendship, making it sound like romantic love almost. For him, we can really only have one true friend. I quote, If two friends asked you to help them at the same time, which of them would you dash to? If they asked for conflicting favors, who would have the priority? If one entrusted to your silence something that was useful to the other, how would you manage? Now let's turn to other reasons why we need friends. 
Friendship seems to be essential in order to better know who we are and how we could be better. We saw that with Aristotle again, that my friend is this alter ego that I love because he mirrors the morality I see in myself or, or that I want to see in myself at least. There is for sure a mimetism at play between friends. I allow my friends' interest to shape my own. I allow the values of my friends to shape my own as well. In the vulnerability I show to my friends, I let them interpret who I am. To be interpreted by my friends is to allow the understanding of myself, of my strength, but also of my weaknesses, to be assessed and shaped by their interpretation. We then develop, thanks to friendship, a new understanding of ourselves and potentially change ourselves in response to this interpretation they give of who we are. And that leads me to speak about differences between friends. So far, we've been talking about similarity of interests and values and about this idea that a friend is a mirror. Maybe, but maybe the friend is a mirror not in the sense that he is my alter ego, similar to me, and reflecting what we both are, but more in the sense that the friend gives me the mirror I need to be able to critically reflect on the weaknesses of my character. Because friends are different, they can give each other unexpected perspectives on the value of certain decisions we make. They have an active role in transforming each other's evaluative outlook on who we are. And this is not only a fact. We do not only accept our friends' advice, but we ought to accept direction and interpretation from our friends. And, careful, give the same to them. And that might be the hardest part. Sincerity seems to be the main function of friendship, even if it's a painful one. Cicero said that friendship is only truth and sincerity. We have to address our friends' flaws even when they don't affect us. La Rochefoucauld again was saying that it is one of the most difficult tasks of a friend, therefore one of the most important characteristics of a true friendship, to not only show ourselves naked to our friends and accept their criticism, but also to give them our honest advice or opinion about them. Plutarque was saying, I don't need a friend who changes when I change and who nods when I nod. My shadow does that much better. So friendship is really a courageous and delicate act It requires a lot of effort. It's so much easier to always be the nice friend than to fall into the flattery and hypocrisy we were talking about earlier. There is basically this enormous risk to lose the friendship. And friendship is certainly not motivated by self-love here, in the sense that this type of true friendship, based on sincerity, only exists if it is always ready to take the risk of putting its very existence in danger. If I'm perfectly honest with my friends, if I don't hesitate to show my disagreement or disapproval for what they say or do, I am putting that friendship in jeopardy by proving its very authenticity. So after exploring the different types of friendship, we ended up identifying sincerity and transparency as the most valuable criteria for true friendship. 
friendship is the means by which we can grow through the honest feedback our friends give us, and in return, we have a duty towards our friends to help them be more lucid about themselves. So you need to feel ready to lose a friend if you want to be a true friend to them. But this very purist conception of friendship that we've been exploring is challenged today with, among other things, the way social media can interfere with our definition of friendship. With the appellation friend, which at first was just an online trick from companies in order to get people's attention, gain trust and push them to share contents, really we lost potentially something about the true definition of friendship. Are our friends on Facebook or Instagram just the means to promote a form of narcissism, where we are just looking for followers, after all? Friendship supposes a common shared history of interaction, supposes trust, sincerity, intimacy, and most of all, a considerable investment of time. As Montaigne pointed out, when he was leaning towards the idea that the fewer friends we have, the truer the friendships. An increase in number of friends would decrease the strength of the bond we have with our friends. The quality of friendship in that sense is incompatible with a large quantity of them. Now, while I do agree with certain demanding features regarding how friendship should be regarded as a strong bond, I'd say that too much of a purist definition of friendship can also sound asphyxiating or rigid, or maybe outdated too. The opposition between virtual or digital and real is often obsolete or caricatured, especially today under stay-at-home policies. Social media and virtual communication can actually nurture friendships, feed them, allow them to keep flourishing despite the distance. And the physical presence or contact doesn't seem to be that essential anymore, even if touch is crucial for survival. We speak today during COVID of skin hunger that Zoom and WhatsApp cannot compensate for. The virtual world also can broaden the possibilities of friendship, for instance, with people we lost contact with, old friends, or with people who struggle with the same issues we have. If I am gay in a very conservative community, I will be glad to escape geographical determinisms and find people who share my concerns online. On a political level even, fighting for the same causes beyond physical borders can be a catalyst for friendships formed among people who don't live in the same geographical environment. One thing, though, where we cannot be naive is that social media and the possibility of digital friendships doesn't really increase our chances to meet people who are radically different from us. We don't really gain in diversity, as social media platforms often reconduct and perhaps aggravate even the echo chamber effect. The possible redeployment of friendship online leads us often towards people who already share our views and don't necessarily enlarge our horizons. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? A podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording and editing the podcast as well as composing all of the music. Stay tuned for the next episode.